0: Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We
1: are Irish Life.
0: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Ciarán Hancock. It's Tuesday, January 10th and this week we looked at controversy around so-called vulture funds who bought up about 200 billion euros worth of property in Ireland and have made vast profits from our generous tax structures. These revelations emerged in a television documentary by RTE and Ian Kyo, editor of the Sunday Business Post. Joining me in studio was Pierce Doherty, Sinn Féin's finance spokesman, Barry O'Halloran, a business reporter with the Irish Times who has reported extensively on the controversy surrounding the sale by NAMA of its Project Eagle portfolio in Northern Ireland, and by Joe Brennan, our markets correspondent. Before we begin, let me remind you that Inside Business is available to download for free from iTunes. You'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. And if you'd like to have your say about anything on the Inside Business podcast, you can contact us by email at business. ...podcast at irishtimes.com. And on the subject of corporate tax, the Irish Times will be hosting a summit this month... ...to discuss Ireland's future tax regime. EU Commissioner for Taxation, Pierre Moscovici... ...will be among the key speakers at the Irish Times Corporate Tax Summit... ...Ireland versus the World on January 24th in the Weston Hotel. Tickets are available at irishtimes.com tax summit. Now to the Vulture Funds. Joe Brennan takes us through some of the main players... ...the assets and loans that they've acquired... ...and the structures they've used to pay little or no tax on their vast profits... Barry Halloran spoke to us about Cerberus and its controversial purchase of Nama's Project Eagle portfolio in 2014. Barry also raised questions about whether the government may have accidentally done the wrong thing by closing the Section 110 loophole. And Piers Stoherty said that a failure of regulation had allowed vulture funds to buy a property and it was a matter of government policy. The government were in favour of it because it helped out the banks and helped NAMA. He also said NAMA got the timing of its asset sales wrong, but they did so under the direction of the government. And we spoke to him about Northern Ireland and the imminent collapse of the Assembly following Mark McGuinness's decision to step down as Deputy First Minister. Pierce said Sinn Fein had no choice but to do what they did, and that the next step is elections, which will be followed by long negotiations to find a solution to the impasse with the DUP. But we begin with a clip from the RTE documentary where presenter Inkyo explains the scale of voucher funds in Ireland. 90,000 mortgages, almost 200 billion euro in property and business loans. These international funds have become our banks, our business partners, our landlords. That was a clip from the RTE documentary, The Great Irish Sell Off, uh, from Monday night, uh, hosted by Inkyo, the Sunday Business Post editor. And I think it contextualises the kind of impact that investment funds have had, or vulture funds, as he calls them, have had in Ireland over the past number of years. Uh, Joe Brennan, you're going to just give us a little flavour for who these funds are when they come into the Irish market and why it is that they've been making so much money. Yeah, I suppose
1: um, cast back, I suppose 2010 was really when uh, Ireland was in the uh, in the sights of these vulture funds. You had a few things happening at that stage. <clears throat> you had NAMA set up, which had taken over uh, par value, about 70 billion of loans from, from the banks, and ultimately that would have to make its way out of, out of NAMA. That was the whole point of NAMA, was to wind itself down over a number of years. And then you had the first of the, the overseas banks that had gotten into the Irish market and had really ramped up lending uh, as, a, as a, the bubble uh, continued to grow. Uh, Lloyd's was the big one uh, back in 2010. It had built up a 30 billion euro uh, portfolio. It decided in 2010 that it was getting out of Ireland. So again, these assets had to make their way into, into private ownership. The first of the deals you would have seen in Ireland was in about 2012. It was a relatively small portfolio, about 360 uh, million euros of loans that Lloyd sold uh, to uh, Kennedy Wilson. Now, Kennedy Wilson, you remember, um, had bought uh, Bank of Ireland real estate the prior year to that. So, It was one of the, 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 the first wave of, of investors that had bought uh, portfolios. And just to show how um distressed the assets were at the time and and, and how little uh, these funds were prepared to 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 uh, to pay for these loans i think they paid about 17 cent in the in the, in the euro for for these for these loans um after that uh, a big player um uh, from the very outset was was Lone Star um they bought about 5 billion of of assets that's a texas based a dallas based uh, company uh, owned by a colorful individual uh, john uh, gregan um who's a Thing based in, in London, but actually is American. Um, they bought about five billion of assets uh, again at uh, deep discounts. They bought loans as well as actual assets as well. I suppose uh, one of the kind of the big uh, assets they would have bought would have been Juries Inn back in 2014. That had its own issues o- o- over the years as well. They also bought uh, Start Mortgages uh, back in 2014. Um other guys you would have come in, you've seen come in, again, these would have been typical mm. distressed kind of debt buyers, Carval, mm. some of the investment banks, uh, Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank, they would have units within their yeah. within their their groups that would buy those kind of distressed. Uh, and in uh, the
0: piece you've written for the Irish Times newspaper, um, uh, in Tuesday's paper, uh, you said that 2014 was really the big year. That's when we had the big car boot sale when uh, 30 billion or more was offloaded. Uh, in Ireland, uh, largely true. IBRC. Yeah, that, w- that was loan
1: sales alone. So you had uh, you had IBRC, you had the the liquidation, the decision in t- early two thousand and thirteen to liquidate uh, uh, former Anglo Irish mm-hmm. Bank, IBRC. Those loans had to be sold um, fairly quickly. It was really two thousand and fourteen when those sold, th- th- most of the sales okay. went through. But you also had NAMA sales going through, and some other bank sales. Uh, Lloyd's was kind of finishing up its 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 own deleveraging in Ireland as well.
0: And just briefly, how how have these companies made the kind of profits that? were talked about in the RT programme the other night. How have they been able to exploit the legislation that exists here to make vast profits? Yeah, on they,
1: they use assets? various kind of vehicles. So if you look at the, 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 the loans themselves, typically they put these loans into uh, these vehicles, uh, special purpose vehicles and they were, they were using legislation back in 1997 which was set up specifically to uh, to bring kind of uh, international finance into Ireland but it, these were designed very specifically to be very tax efficient, no employees, just a few directors, um, it was a big uh, income generator for kind of professional services done in, in, in the IFSC, They were never really designed for 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 um, for property, but. Because of the the tax efficiency of these vehicles, they were used by uh, by, by these funds, and they pumped billions of dollars into SPVs, they call Section 110 companies. Uh, again, they were designed uh, to, to minimize the amount of tax of these vehicles and make themselves. Because generally, what you would have is the the the, the owner of the assets would lend into the vehicle. Right. The vehicle would actually uh, so most of the of the 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 what would have been the profit what would have been stripped out by way of actually paying back uh paying back interest to the to the company that actually owned the assets themselves so that was a way of kind of designing to minimize the taxable income of these okay.
0: and of course there was a measure I think it was budget 2012 it was introduced whereby if you bought commercial property in Ireland and held it for seven years you were capital gains free at the end of that period
1: yeah for, for actual assets for yeah actual for seven assets, years
0: yeah, yeah. yeah okay Pierce what's your what's your take on uh, what was revealed the other night in the RT uh, show because this is something you've been commenting on for a long time.
2: Yeah, I I think the programme was excellent. I think Ian Co did uh, excellent work um, and a number of journalists have been uh, plugging away this for a long uh, period of time and including Joe here. Um, For for myself, who's followed the story, there was nothing new in it. But what it did was it brought all of the different strands of uh, what we've been seeing in terms of vulture funds, both those that are purchasing debt those that are purchasing physical assets, Mm -hmm. the apartment blocks, the hotels, uh, how mortgages are being treated, the fact that there's no regulation, it brought that all together and then it it, for the first time probably it had the Department of Finance officials saying that this was government policy uh, that it wasn't something that they um, you know wanted to, this is something that they hoped would happen and obviously that was government policy so the myth about you know that this is something that was unforeseen uh, you know was exposed and laid bare uh, last last night in the, in, in the RTE programme. We've seen bits of this come out you know over different periods of time. You've seen on the DAL record the Minister of Finance talked about 65 uh, meetings between his department and these so-called vulture funds, eight of them during the a two-year period that he attended themselves. And when you put that in comparison with uh, those who were advocating on, on behalf of s- distressed borrowers, he didn't turn up to any meetings that his department had with those type of organisations. And that speaks volumes to the type of attitude that was within the department. There was a very clear tax structure, uh, not only just in terms of Section 110s, companies who use that facility uh, for companies who bought debt, who bought your mortgage uh, or who bought the, the debt on, on, a, on a physical asset. But those who bought the physical assets, those who bought the hotels, the apartment blocks, um, the images that we've seen last night in, in terms of uh, who've increased rents in, in Dublin and elsewhere, they used a different structure which was uh, a qualified investment fund. Uh, and it's interesting when Joe talked there about Kennedy Wilson because one of the things we did last year is we poured through a number of the accounts of uh, some of these companies and uh, put forward to, uh, a paper together and sent it to some uh, people to trying to raise this issue. It was actually called uh, uh, Ireland for Sale Tax Free. Um, And when we looked at Kennedy Wilson, we looked at what they had in terms of investment property and it was a billion euro they had in investment property. This is the six month account for the start of last year and for the first six months they made uh, £26 on rent but they paid not a penny tax in Ireland and they paid not a penny tax in Ireland because of the tax structure that was there that was being used the department knew about this year the revenue knew about this year uh, and they didn't have to pay a penny tax on any of this and we know that there's about 10 billion euro of physical assets that's you know apartments uh, Mm. properties here uh, uh, that, that, that are in these type of funds and up until now this week uh, or last week uh, there was no requirement to pay any tax in any of this uh, rental income at Actually all.
0: Kennedy Wilson is one of these professional managers that's come into the Irish uh, rental landscape so they build to rent not build to sell. And Ires is another one of those companies the biggest uh, landlord in the country. It has over 2300 apartments. We actually have a clip from the RTÉ show uh, on Monday night uh, involving uh, both an Ires tenant and also the chief executive of the company. Let's have a listen to it.
2: When Iris took over this building and that building and that building. So all of the buildings? Oh, pretty much all, all of the, the buildings. buildings. Yes, they just sent me a notice of a rent increase of €300. 1100 to, to
0: 1400
1: exactly. Overnight? Overnight. And what could you do?
2: Nothing. I couldn't afford it, so Maybe. I had to move out. I tried to reason with them. You don't have a relationship. They, y- they don't know your circumstances. It's like you're talking to a machine.
0: One of the big criticisms of Ires is that you put up the prices and people are forced to move out. What do you say
2: to that? I don't apologise for it. It's, um, it is what it is. Um, the, uh, I don't know of any company anywhere uh, that doesn't charge what the you know market is.
0: OK, that was David Ehrlich there, the chief executive of Ires, this company that has over 2,300 departments uh, in Ireland. Uh, Pierce, is it a failure of regulation at the heart of that problem?
2: It's not a failure of regulation. You have to remember that this is a deliberate policy and it was done for, um, in my view, reasons that would have pushed up commercial, particularly commercial property in Dublin Uh, and the reason for that was it would help the banks in terms of their their overall uh, balance books and also help NAMA uh, in in the short term Um, what you have is a huge loss to the Irish taxpayer uh, and it was quantified in the the programme last night, Um, I'm not sure all of the details were quantified because all they looked at was was 15 subsidiaries but they did a very good job but if you look at IREs there for example last year, and this is from their own accounts they increased rents uh, by 12% in Dublin last year, in their own accounts they say that a significant poor of their portfolio was up for re So they expected uh, uh, major increases in 2017. But when you look deeper into the, the accounts of Iris, you find that uh, the beneficial ownership of that company is held by a qualified investor fund. So over 15% of it is held by this fund that I mentioned, which means that they were paying no tax whatsoever on that portion of rental income uh, that residents in Dublin and elsewhere were paying uh, to this company, which were pushing up rents like beyond uh, what was what was justifiable and again this was known this isn't this isn't this is the dirty little secret but it was the dirty little secret to the irish public in relation to what was happening but in terms of the department in terms of the revenue officials in terms of government they knew of this and we know that because we have freedom of information uh, requests that we've seen where we see officials within the revenue giving advice to Section 110 companies about how they were dealing with uh, with, uh, these type of property transactions and how they were tax-free. So this all came to light, in in my view, in terms of the public outcry, despite the fact that uh, individuals, particularly the media, were were raising this uh, in different ways, it, when the, the Dennis O'Brien transaction came to the fore uh, in March of last year, where there was a €30 million Euro profit made on a transaction using an ICAV, there was no capital gains tax paid in it, which meant that there was a benefit there of about t- €10 the million. Euro. Hotel on St Stephen's Green? On St Stephen's mm-hmm. Green, yeah. The, and the, the, when that was raised, we asked the department to look into this, and you know, Freedom of Information requested there's a lot of scrambling between the department and uh, the, the revenue officials at that point in time, uh, and allowed for the public pressure uh, to continue to a point where we force the government into bringing forward tax proposals. The Section 110 companies, the, the loophole that they are, is closed down, but the other loophole in terms of these people that are buying properties in Ireland, the hotels, the apartments, is still not closed down. There's a 20% withholding tax, which means that they have to pay 20% on rental income and on capital gains tax. But if somebody comes in, buys a hotel or a suite of apartments and holds them for five years, they have to pay no tax whatsoever if they are foreign on the investment, on the capital gains uh, part of it that uh, if they hold the property for five years. And that's an absolute scandal because most of these individuals came in four years ago. They bought up Dublin. If you look at the figures, 30, 30, over 30% of commercial Dublin was sold in three years. 25% of office space in, in the entire Dublin region was flipped within a three-year period. There was a yeah. million square metres of office space. Well, so Pierce, we, we had a massive crash. Is.
0: The banks were dysfunctional. We would no lending going on. I mean, the government's defence is, and in terms of setting up NAM, they had to do something. And unfortunately, OK, they, they might not have got it right, but, uh, you know, we were in a crisis
2: situation whatever about the rights and wrongs of setting up NAMA, when they set up NAMA, what they did, the purpose of NAMA, remember, was to take the, 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 the stressed assets off the balance sheets of the banks, so therefore to allow the banks to function in a normal capacity. NAMA, what it says on the tin, the National Asset Management Agency, it wasn't the National Fire Sale Agency. What happened was government policy intervened. NAMA does not have to redeem its bonds until 2020, so there is, was no requirement that we start selling massive tranches of the €74 billion, Euro of debt that NAMA Face value had, face-value debt that NAMA had. Um, and, and what happened was the government, for whatever reasons, decided to put pressure on NAMA to start selling. So NAMA had to start selling under government yeah. instruction. They sold into London. They sure. started to make the right decisions initially, but then had to sell more. And look, if they held back, we all know and we can say, well, it's, hindsight is, is is great, you know, but we now know if they held back, the Irish taxpayer would have made billions of euro in additional uh, revenue or savings or, c- or clawback uh, than what they did. Yeah, Joe, you want to come in here?
1: Just on the, on the tax front, look at no bones about it. Uh, these guys are in it to make typically or at least a 20% uh, return. And they're all abashed about
0: it. I mean, David Ehrlich's
1: comment. That's that's their job. That's that's what they do. And that's the way they model it. Yeah. Um, while certainly they they availed of loopholes and it it was very clear that, you know, the sellers of these assets knew that they were actually using these loopholes to get away with paying for minimal tax. An argument that's made on the other side is that when they were buying the assets originally, they were working their way backwards and actually paying the price with the tax benefit. And some people would argue that they were paying up for the assets at a higher price, uh, knowing that they were going to uh, benefit on the tax front. That's an argument made on the other side.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that's a... That's a situation that the government perhaps uh, didn't anticipate. Just, Pierce coming back to Nama, maybe there is a bit of memory fade here because Nama would argue that it focused initially on the UK, primarily on London, and held back the Irish assets at a time when, you know, there were a lot of commentators calling for them to start moving assets in Ireland to get things going in the economy. Uh, and, and there was a view as well going back that this £32 billion wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to repay that. They, they would make a loss, and that was a contingent liability on the state
2: yeah it was and look you know to be fi- indeed
0: was very critical of nama when it was set up
2: yeah and so so, so are we uh, let's be clear about it um but the 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 point and the, the point I made is nama did the right decision in terms of when it was being asked to sell off its uh, assets, which is it started to sell in London originally where you didn't have prices mm-hmm. as dropped as as sharply as you would have had here uh, but then that dried up and then they started to sell in a, in a massive way uh, assets here and they've lost so the, be, the beneficiaries of this here the people who are making the profits on these Nama sales are the vulture funds now so the, like they're making the be- they're making the profit here which it should be Nama and Nama is the Irish but NAMA tax. Nama is
0: making the profit isn't it 2.3 no, million? No well that's what they're
2: projecting. Yeah but that's look remember when Nama was set up Nama what we were told that they would pursue people to the end of the earth that they were going to pursue personal guarantees, that it wasn't just the amount of money that they paid for the the, the asset itself. Realistic. Well, look, you know, the amount of borrowing that was taken out to underpin these was €74 billion. Euro. Um, if NAMA, if you look at NAMA as an entity on itself, yes, it will come back with about €2 billion, euro, but at a time when property prices have recovered so much, at a time when in the last two years, 2015 and 2014, in the world... Dublin and Ireland was the hottest place in terms of commercial property and NAMA was made up of commercial property, then there's serious questions that NAMA had had got it wrong. But it's not fair and it's the easy thing to do to blame NAMA and say that it's all NAMA's fault. They did this under the government direction. Now, the government give this direction on the view that there was a contingent liability there and they had to look at the bigger issue. But there's no doubt about it, with hindsight, and I think that we we should have been, you know, we were arguing at the time that they needed to slow down and the should still slow down, even though that there's not very much left, that the Irish state has lost out billions of euro as a result of the wrong decisions to sell at the time that they, that, that they did and what's that's ha- What's happened as a result of these type of fire sales is that there's been a sort of commercial property bubble where you have um, some of the uh, rating agencies like the likes of Moody's are, are talking about um, serious imbalances in commercial property in Dublin where you have you know the second highest rent in, in terms of uh, for a grade A office space mm. is, in ter- is in Dublin in Europe uh, and the big problem here now and what's been warned is when these vulture funds start to withdraw... Uh, which is what they do after, you know, a typical five, six, seven year investment. It is Irish investors that pick up uh, the, the, the these properties, but they're picking up at a top price. And it will be usually Irish banks who will lend into them, which is then causing a serious problem because now we have not, you know, we have uh, we have properties that are being bought yeah. by Irish banks well, at, at top. Well, there's penny. a bit of
0: supposition there. I mean, we'll we wait and see how that plays out. It might be international investors that come into the market. OK, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, Barry Halloran, of the Irish Times will take us through the Cerberus purchase of the Project Eagle portfolio in Northern Ireland in 2014. That kicked up quite a storm. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with
2: Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish
0: Life June 2015. Now, welcome back to the show. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. This week, I was joined by Sinn Féin's Pierce Doherty and Barry O'Halloran and Joe Brennan of The Irish Times. We were discussing the impact of vulture funds on the Irish property market, where they have bought billions of euros of assets at knockdown prices and are paying little or no tax on the profits. In this part of the programme, I began by asking Barry O'Halloran about the surprise purchase of Project Eagle in 2014.
3: Okay, well, well. fundamentally, uh, it emerged that a former NAMA advisor was, was involved with, with one of the bidders, a guy called Frank Cushnan, and he was involved with PIMCO, which left the process. But the... The, the revelations basically led to suggestions or claims that various politicians and um, business people were to benefit from a success fee related to this deal that the, the fee and we're talking mm-hmm. millions sorry. yeah we're talking well the, the fee that the success fee alone was 16 million. Mm-hmm. Um, 16 million sterling or fifteen million sterling depending on you know the the actual timing of the proposal but the, fundamentally this this led to, to claims of skullduggery, and that has now in turn led to a series of investigations a parliamentary investigation here. Um, a criminal investigation by the UK's National Crime Agency, the United States um, stock market regulator, the SEC is also
0: yeah.
3: um, looking into aspects of the now deal.
0: You might have thought that that would put Cerberus off this market, that they might say, oh, do you know what, I don't want the hassle of dealing with Ireland again after what's happened here. But in fact, they've continued to bid and they've continued to buy assets it, here.
3: It, in fact, Cerberus has been one of the biggest players. They bought, including Project Eagle, and in Euro terms, they bought loans with a face value of 27 billion or so, and even in the teeth of the the Project Eagle controversy, which has been raised several times, and Don I know Pierce Starty has commented on it himself several times, um, Cerberus continued to bid um, for uh, portfolios put on the market, not just by NAMA but also by Ulster Bank and, and by by other lenders. So, I mean, clearly from Cerberus's point of view. They thought all the flack that they were taking, and they took a lot of flack. Their chief operating officer appeared before the Doyle Public Accounts Committee not so long ago. But in spite of all this, they reckoned it was still worth getting involved in Ireland. They took the heat, and they've um, they've been a very, very big player.
0: And that's presumably because of the profits that are available here.
3: Like, well, the, the one person suggested to me that the internal rate of return, now I know this is a very technical Issue, but that the internal rate of return that they were making was in and around the 18% mark, which is very high and which ties in with the 20% What would be normal? What would
0: be well, average?
3: It, it, uh, for a lot of these, you could be looking at sort of 5 to 10%, and if you're, if you're making that 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 return on top of what you've invested over the five-year period, you, you come out with quite a decent profit for your investors, but yeah. um, you, you're looking at sort of, if, if you like, one and a half to three times that, depending on how you, how these things are measured and how these things are weighed up. Um, you, you, Cerberus is making, if you like, multiples of that, 18% is very much at the, the, the higher end of the bracket. It does tie in with the 20% figure that we've heard um, that we've heard quoted here earlier today, certainly. So it gives you an indication of the kind of opportunities that these people see here. And the other thing about Cerberus, this is really significant, I think. Um, and I suppose it's it's been lost in some of the coverage, but um, Cerberus got... A lot of the big players in the Project Eagle portfolio to refinance very quickly. They did the deal, they agreed the sale with Nama in April 2014. The deal formally went through in June 2014. By July 2015, as the, as the scandal was beginning to break, they had refinanced the likes of Patter Carney, of Mar Properties, of, of all the, the the virtually all the big ticket Project Eagle borrowers were refinanced. They took their money out. They paid off their third-party lender. And that that effectively meant that all the the interest income that's streaming out of this portfolio is now. Do we
0: know how much Cerberus have made or will make uh, from the Project Eagle portfolio in profits?
3: um, I I saw a figure. They they threw off an income, I think, of something around in and around the 200 million mark in a year. And they paid, I think, about maybe 15. They paid less tax than I would in a year.
0: Right, OK. Now, you also have some, uh, you, you've an interesting insight, if you like, uh, on the whole closing off of the tax loopholes. You, you don't think it's as straightforward as it's as no, being no, made? No, I out, don't. I d- um,
3: and I, this, is, this is worrying because the, 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 the legislation is passed by politicians. Politicians are here to defend the public interest. They are our servants. We pay them to look after our interest. And I think in attempting to do the right thing with Section 110, I suspect that they may have actually ended up, doing the wrong thing. There's a legal nuance at play here, but there there are two significant things about Section 110. First, it was announced by the Minister in September, and it was retrospected. Retrospection is often used to plug tax loopholes, but it runs contrary to normal practice in common law. This is a common law jurisdiction.
0: And indeed, it's one of the reasons that Ireland is defending the case, the Apple case, uh, with the European Commission. Exactly,
3: yes. The second element to it is that in order to make the interest income from the, the portfolios taxable, the 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 legislation effectively changes the nature of a property right. It says, actually, that's not, that is a real estate right rather than another type of property, which is what interest income is. The interest income to which you're entitled is your property, but it's not a real estate. Uh, It's not a real estate, right? It's not an interest in in actual physical land. The government has said, no, this is an interest in, or the, the, the Oireachtas is saying, no, this is an actual physical interest in land. By changing the nature of a property right, they're possibly running contrary to the Constitution. Now, you might say, well, there's a there's, there's far and against around that. But if you were changing the nature of a property right in order to tax somebody or in order to get somebody to pay more tax, that could clearly be regarded as an attack on a constitutional right in order simply mm-hmm. to take more money off somebody. Now, I know that rightly there is very little um, sympathy for vulture funds. However, if you were to look at that in, in the round, and if you were a court looking at this in the round, you would also have to look at the possible impact on other citizens, and you're giving the state way too much power if you're allowing them allowing them to get away with that. The question is whether or not one of these, the Cerberuses or the, the Lone Stars, will take it upon themselves to challenge this. In order for them to challenge it, the legislation has to be passed, and they have to be able to demonstrate that their interest has been attacked in some way by this. They may not do that, but And they may be possibly worried about the the adverse publicity, but given Cerberus' experience and given the fact that Cerberus walked into this country and took all the the heat around Project Eagle, it wouldn't surprise me if one or other of these organizations was considering a challenge and would be willing to take it and think, well, what the hell, Mm. let's challenge it, let's not pay the tax, we'll be out of there in two or three years anyway.
0: Okay. Uh, Pierce, it's not all just about corporate debtors and uh, loans and big commercial properties and so on. There's a lot of people whose mortgages have been acquired by these funds over the past uh, number of years. Uh, T mentioned 90,000 in their programme. I don't know if you have a, a different figure to that, but have you ever had a proper explanation as to why in the IBRC liquidation process and the sell-off of assets, uh, corporate loan holders were uh, able to get um, a, a debt write-off, if you like, but the, the mortgage holders weren't?
2: Well, there's been an explanation, um, whether it's a proper explanation or not. We we argued very strongly at the time that, uh, that 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 there should be an offer to the individuals for the primary home. We're talking about family homes here. We're not talking about uh, you know uh, property investment properties uh, that, that that were done. It's about people's homes. Uh, and in in that case, you had about thirteen thousand five hundred uh, homes that were being sold at that at that time. Uh, and we argued that that write off should be offered to them first if they're if they're given to the vulture funds. The argument from the government at the time is about moral hazard. It is about if you're allowing, you know, that to happen, then how how can we assure that people just don't stop paying their mortgages so that they enter into default and force the bank to sell them on and then have to offer them at a right. And, look, if there's a willingness there, there's a way to actually get around that um you know, we see from the program last night, and we know from during that period that people uh, were offering their own individual banks more than what uh, the, the the vulture funds paid for them. In that case, it was forty two cent in the euro, and that was just one tranche. You know, I've been on the phone to, um, so I won't mention the name, but one particular bank recently begging them not to sell to a vulture fund because the regulation isn't there in terms of the the owners of so this. Is it a domestic bank? Yes, it is. Yeah, which one of the most recent banks uh, had a phone call and you know, and asking them to try and sell it to the government or you know, not to mm. sell it to a vulture fund and you know, and they talked. Told me that these these are and these people aren't paying anything. This this was the language that they put out in their press release. Then when we find out when we dig into it more deep deeper, they are paying. They're just not able to pay all of it. And um, so look, some of these banks are. Just want some of their more difficult loans mm-hmm. off off their books, um, and what we don't have is regulation of the loan owners. Uh, and yeah, I was going to
0: ask you if that was a failure uh, in this situation because the credit servicing firms are regulated, aren't they? But the the owners aren't.
2: Yes, and when you know, if you look at it again and go back to who has the influence in the corridors of power when the original bill was published. Uh, In 2015 I believe uh, it had what the legislation said is that the owners of the loans, the vulture funds the the, the, the names that we've heard here would be the ones that are regulated. What happened is obviously they got in contact with the department or with the minister uh, and that changed. So now it is only the firm that they employ to do the servicing of that that is regulated and I, at the time, in the Finance Committee, put forward an amendment uh, to go back to the original position where it would be the owner that would be regulated. It was voted down by the government at the time. I think the only person to support my proposal was, um, I think it was Richard Boy Barrett at the time. And now we see from letters that we've got from Freedom of Information on numerous times including the last report that was done uh, for the minister that was just released on the eve of christmas uh, about vulture funds and what can be done in terms of uh, additional regulation is talking again about that we need to regulate the central bank wants to be able to regulate the owner because it is the owner who ultimately makes the corporate decisions that the servicers have to carry out and they have no way of, of impacting on the owner yeah joe you want to
0: come in on this
1: yeah, um, just um, most of the the original um, uh, mortgages that were sold were sold by the likes of of Lloyds the likes mm-hmm. of IBRC which obviously is in liquidation. Um, we're seeing more recently uh, the, the likes of of banks who are really struggling have made back to
0: the last
1: year, also back to the- towards the back in the last year, yeah, loans that I think typically were t- at least 2 years uh, where they had no engagement with the customer. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we've started in the point. paper
0: today that KPC Bank Ireland has done it for a small
2: number but of labs as well. true, just because, sorry to interrupt, because w- w- when I pushed this, they actually did have engagement with the, co- the customer. When you dig deeper into what Ulster Bank was saying, they initially went out and said there's no engagement. As if, you, know, and that, you could understand people would say, well, if they're not lifting the phone, if they're not paying a penny, mm-hmm. they haven't done so for two years, then you know, fair is fair. People might think that way. But that isn't the case when you actually dig deeper. It was that these individuals weren't paying their entire amount to Ulster Bank. And that was the problem. Some of them weren't engaging at all, but another proportion of them were engaging, but they just couldn't pay the entire amount. Do we, we know what proportion? Because Ulster no, Bank hasn't Ulster been Bank prepared won't, to won't give us those details. Right. But that, that is the case. One way or the
1: other, anyway, we have the, the, the remaining banks. And, and, and while they've made good headway in the last number of years in, in, in restructuring loans and in lowering their overall impaired loans, they are arriving at this... Tranche of pro of loans, which are they're finding very. There's a
0: difficult. moment of truth for the people who exactly. are two years plus uh, in arrears with the mortgage. Two years it?
1: plus, and also the banks are, are facing capital. Uh, basically, the, the regulators are beating on their neck in terms of sorting out these loans, and you have loans, yeah. and they also have uh, capital penalties for the level of of non-performing loans. Uh, while the Irish banks have done a, a huge amount of work, and the trajectory has been you know pretty decent in terms of what they've done in terms of restructuring loans, and obviously had an improving economy as well when you look at Irish banks versus European banks, they're still among the highest, and and they are being penalised from a capital point of view from that. And you are beginning to see the remaining banks beginning to look at, you know, the the unthinkable a few years ago. What will they do with some of these loans, which are like 720 days in arrears plus, and you have the likes of AIB looking at potentially setting off uh, at least buy-to-let mortgages that would be uh, in, in in heavy arrears. Yeah, and that's going to become much more of an issue for the yeah. remaining banks of so the. So, what's they doing in
0: that situation? What should the government be doing in that situation, particularly? Let's just focus around the owner-occupied. I suppose buy-to-let is you know their investment properties, and uh, I, I think there's a greater appetite for, for those to go to repossession or whatever. But in terms of owner-occupied homes, because this is going to be an issue that's it's coming down the track. It's a steam train uh, coming straight at us down the track.
2: Yeah, well, well, you also need to look at what's happening in terms of the banks' balance sheets. So, what we've seen in terms of the trend over the last period of time is they're rewriting back in what was the provision of losses that they made, and the reason that they're doing that is because property prices increasing, people are going back into employment, they're able to, they're they're coming out of arrears, and and adjustments have been made. So, the type of provision that they've got in their books uh, is no longer the type of loss that they were going to have to absorb is no loss uh, longer there. So, there is capacity here within the banks. There was always going to be a group of individuals who. You know, we're in a more distressed uh, category. There are a number of solutions that we all know of. We all talked about the type of uh, you know mortgage to rent schemes hasn't over two hundred people. Yeah, but hasn't worked. The idea is good, uh, you know, and successive governments haven't had it to work to fix the dam scheme. You know, the idea is there, there's a way of fixing it. You know, it's been going on for now four years. and the figures are absolutely appalling. But there's a desire there. There's a there's there's a demand there as well. But people and I think the demand would be more if people knew that the scheme would actually lead to a positive outcome in 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 the in the future. The other thing is the banks need to start thinking, well if I'm going to sell this on to a fund at, at sixty cents in the euro, then the first thing I should do is offer it to the individual in the sixty cents in the euro and in terms, I, I think that we shouldn't be, uh, you know, it's right to be thinking of those in, in their own homes, the family home, and there's, it's really important that we protect those in the family homes. But there is also another cohort of people. It's not the buy-to-let properties, but it's also the, the small, medium enterprises. Like many of them have p- been put to the wall in terms of the bank. And we're starting now yeah. in the uh, Finance Committee to start a module in relation to what happened with Ulster Bank, where they were put into, you know, a, a certain section of the yeah, bank yeah, sure. to, to restructure them. And only less than 100 of these companies. But let's just stick with
0: the residential mortgages, uh, if we may. I mean, uh, writing off debt is a mortal sin in the banking world. They just it's don't happening. want, they don't want to do it. It might be happening, but they don't want to
2: to do it? It happens every day and there's no bank in the world that doesn't write off debt. There's no business in the world that doesn't do this. this and what is, about this, the issue of moral hazard? Th- like the this is the, the, the writing off of debt is, you know, this became a big issue. It should have happened. Uh, the banks started to play hard in relation to this. They were not doing it because they thought everybody would stop paying their mortgage because everybody thought they would get this massive write down. But banks are writing off debt. They've been writing off debt for years. They will continue to write off debts. Even if there's a boom, they'll continue to write off debts. That's how banks will work. Every single loan that you issue will not come back in. If that was the case we wouldn't have the type of interest rates. The interest rates are there because of the risk that they are taking. And the risk is there because they know that they will not be able to some of the loans that they will issue will yeah. mean that they'll have to I the think write the banks will
0: characterize that as set forgiveness rather than debt write off. But anyway, it's a it's a bit of a nuance, but uh, just very briefly if you like um how should the government uh, respond to this to make sure that people you know who own their own homes and are in arrears uh, don't end up in this situation that we saw last night uh, with vulture funds basically jacking up their interest rates or what have you?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of things that can be done. First of all, we need to bring in regulation in terms of v- vulture funds themselves. I think we need to look at the code of conduct to make sure... It- You know that there is face-to-face interaction. Um, I know people, when they come to me in terms of Bank of Ireland or AIB, we have usually an individual within all of those institutions that we can contact on behalf of um, of, of a customer. In terms of the vulture funds, just forget about it. It's just not there. You can't engage with them. We can't engage with them. Um, So people are at the mercy, and I think there is a requirement for government to do that. They've asked the central bank to commission a report in relation to that. As I said, it was published just before Christmas. There's nothing really... Air chattering in it. The programme for government co- contains a commitment that these funds will be have to offer all home, homeowners to um, to to um, types of scenarios like a split mortgage or a mortgage to rent. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. So there are solutions that we can introduce uh, if the go- if the will is there. I'm not sure that the will is really there because I think that the government still want to use these funds to to clean up what they would call the carcasses. Uh, In my view, these carcasses are individuals, they're families. We've seen the human face of them last night. They're real people and they're going through real suffering at this point in time. And I think there's a responsibility in the government to step in and protect them from these vultures in in whatever way they can.
0: Okay, we'll see how that issue plays out. But you mentioned uh, government there. And just uh, again, briefly, if you like, uh, let's talk about Northern Ireland for a few moments because Martin McGuinness resigned as Deputy First Minister yesterday. Um, It looks as if that's going to trigger an election. Uh, How is this going to play out? And why did Sinn Féin effectively bring down this administration?
2: Well, I think anybody who's been following what's happened in in the Assembly and in the North for for a period of time, you can see that there has been... um, probably arrogance practiced by the DUP in relation to many issues we we mentioned there in terms of Project Eagle you know Project Eagle the DUP are up to their necks or individuals within the DUP are up to their necks and we've seen that in terms of some of the inquiries that are going out and there's a lot of allegations in relation to that and we have investigations in different jurisdictions, and then we have the Renewable Heat uh, Initiative it's scandal, cash for ash, yeah. cash for ash. like a, a scheme that was devised by um, by Arlene Foster when she was minister, uh, a scheme that was overseen by herself, a scheme that people like the Ulster Farmers Union and whistleblowers informed her uh, that it was th- there was no cost controls. Uh, she continued to do it. There's allegations within her own party of her minister who took up uh, his her office uh, when she was promoted to um, office of uh, First Minister. Um, that he makes allegations against certain individuals within the DUP. And the loss to the public purse in the north is about 600 million euro. Uh, yet what we've asked for is an inquiry. Uh, we've asked that she stands aside without prejudice for four weeks during that period. A- and she's refused to do so. And the arrogance that she showed and the DEP showed at that point in time left us with no yeah. option but so where, to, where's the to, to, to resign. So go from here? It goes into elections. Uh, it's very clear that there will be elections. We've had the Secretary of State now um, come out just in the last um, uh, hour or so um, say that what will happen now is that there will be an elections after the, the, the period has elapsed. We have seven days to to renominate somebody in the stead of Martin McGuinness. We're not going to do that. We believe there has to be elections but Crucially, after the elections, it's likely that there's going to be a process of negotiations because we're making it very clear that we're not going back to the status quo, that the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, which is based on equality, which is based on respect, which is based on party of esteem, has to be lived up to by all parties. uh, And Sinn Féin isn't willing to go back into an executive uh, on the basis of what we've seen. I mean, what will
0: an election change? I mean, let's say the outcome is pretty much as it is now. I mean, what's going to change after that?
2: Well, it it allows the the public in the North to, to cast their judgment to give fresh mandates if they so desire to MLAs, to political parties. Um, The alternative to that would be, and I heard the likes of Neil Martin today criticising Sinn Féin, but that's no surprise for us uh, taking the action that we have taken. Remember, we've given the DUP ample time to 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 do the right thing here, and I think most independent observers uh, believe that Martin McGuinness it did the right thing in terms of allowing Arlene the space. We he went to her privately. He asked her to step aside. He said that that's what he would do. When she refused to do so, she, mm. he went out publicly. He asked her to think about it over Christmas. We didn't rush into this. We've uh, we've been involved in, with our negotiation teams right over the Christmas period. It hasn't worked. She's taken a very entrenched view, uh, and the only option is to to collapse the government now. As I said, Michael Martin thinks that's the wrong thing to do. But can you imagine that Enda Kenny devising a scheme which said that if you put a burner in a farm shed, which is happening in the north, and shovel pellets into it, and for every euro that you put in, we'll, the government will pay you 1. 6, 1 euro sixty back, costing the Irish taxpayer 600 million euro, mm. that Michael Martin would stand aside, would stand and still support Enda Kenny without him stepping aside? We have tried our best. Uh, to have a process that would allow the assembly to continue to function would uh, allow it to have credibility, which it is losing at a rapid pace over the last period as a result of the scandal and others. But it hasn't happened, so there has to be an election, unfortunately, uh, and there ha- will have to be negotiations, and there will be ha- have to be change if we're to see uh, an executive back up and running uh, post those elections. All right.
0: And finally, Martin McGuinness. I mean, I think a lot of people were shocked uh, to see him come out and make a statement. He's he's clearly unwell, uh, and we send him our best wishes. But is he going to be okay?
2: I hope so. Uh, Obviously, uh, he's sick at this point in time. He's going through treatment, he's getting the best of care, and we expect him to to make a full recovery. And I think it speaks volumes to the type of person that Martin McGuinness is. And, you know, I was walking down Grafton Street last night and people were stopping me and asking me to send on their best wishes uh, to Martin McGuinness. There's a genuine, uh, you know... People are concerned about his health, and it's nice that people are because he he is held in high regard by many people, including people from the from the unionist tradition. But yesterday. He made a point of going to Stormont. He made a point of sitting down with Arlene Foster himself face to face. He made a point then afterwards of facing the media, taking questions and explaining his decision. And I think it's, it's, it just exemplifies the type of leadership that Martin McGuinness has given over 10 years, working with different DUP ministers, different DUP first ministers. People thought that... It was impossible that himself and Martin McGuinness would, uh, or himself and Ian Paisley, would be able to share uh, a joint office. Not only to share a joint office in a very business way, they became friends. And, you know, and that speaks volumes to the character of Martin McGuinness, but also in terms of uh, the character of of Ian Paisley uh, at at that time. Sure.
0: Okay. well, listen, we wish him well uh, in his battle against ill health. uh, Pierce Stoherty, Barry Halloran, and Joe Brennan. Thank you for joining us. That's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Pierce Doherty, Barry Halloran and Joe Brennan for joining me on the show. Jennifer Ryan produced the podcast with Robert Sullivan as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. And if you'd like to make any comments or suggestions about Inside Business, you can contact us by email at businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.